HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Hi. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. Joining me today is Rich Shi, the brains behind fermentation blog, Our Cook Quest. A mechanical engineer by day, he moonlights as Jean Doe, D-O-U-G-H, um, the fermentation <laughs> expert slash koji extraordinaire by night. We'll be talking about his crazy ferment projects, can you really umboshi anything and everything, uh, why he's here in New York City this weekend, and the exciting projects he's got brewing for the near future. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you ha- for having me. I'm excited to be back at Heritage. Oh yeah, he's a, he's a vet. Yeah. He's been here. <laughs> uh, so I started uh, opening my show with a question, um, which is, where are you from? Which for Asian Americans or anyone, uh, I guess, of color is kind of seen as like a hostile question nowadays. Um, anyway, yeah, so I was just wa- hoping to reappropriate the question and make it, um, yeah, sure. just hear your um, thoughts yeah. on that. So I'm an Asian American. My parents are both from Taiwan, uh, and they moved here to, to go to college. So I, I grew up in um, uh, the Springfield, Massachusetts area, and then when I was in fifth grade, I moved over into a bordering town, Longmeadow. Uh, so nothing too exciting. Like, kind of grew up in suburbia. Uh, you know, very few minorities, and just grew up as an American kid with a an Asian family uh, who didn't necessarily understand like what uh, American culture was all about. And it was more like how you know they grew up and how things were and how you know the the male figure of the family would bring home the uh, income and the, the mother would uh, kind of take care of 
the children and, and anything that had to do with them. So uh, I think that's pretty much how I grew up is kind of wanting for more of an American lifestyle because everybody who I interacted with uh, had this kind of, you know, my dad went would take me out to play ball or learn all these things about, um, you know, or go fishing or, or do these, you know, kind of normal kid type things that I would see every day and I would come home and uh, my, my dad would just ask me if, if I did well in school or if I was studying enough or, you know, and my mom would be cooking and like just taking care of us and making sure that we had everything we needed. So it was uh, kind of like this interesting, I guess, bipolar sort of interaction with um, people in the community versus, uh, you know, just hanging out at home with my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually what got me into food. Um, I was watching the Food Network and Paula Dean was doing a Thanksgiving episode and she had 20 of her closest friends around this huge table all eating like turkey, uh, cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes. And that was something that I'd never seen or had. And so that Thanksgiving was like, I'm going to make chicken pot pie <laughs> or whatever. And I use Bisquick or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of my weird fascination slash interest in American culture. It was so different. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the cool thing was uh, my mom has always been kind of a, a creative cook who would just use ingredients that she had available. And one of the things she would do is, you know, instead of stuffing a turkey with, you know, a, a normal uh, dressing, you know, a normal like bread cr- breadcrumb or bread driven uh, stuffing, she would use sticky rice. Hmm. So, yeah, so it was pretty cool in that, in that way that she would just kind of have a fundamental understanding of something and be able to apply it in a different way. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. Okay, so how did that uh, past or that history bring you into the world of koji or world of uh, ferments? So I guess in terms of the past, uh, my experience with food has always been adventurous because I would get all the different flavors that uh, my parents were used to. So like pickled things and uh, also, you know, eating whole fish or... Or just having things that, you know, like um, dochi, like the um, fermented black beans, all of these flavors that were really unctuous and sharp and also spicy that as a kid I would just have as part of, you know, my a morning breakfast of rice porridge, kanji. We'd have, you know, all these different, this array of pickles of preserved things that you would accent with your, your porridge and eat them. So as a child, I had, you know, I had this multiple array of things that I would eat and it would not be limited by anything. And I would, I would get this variety at home and then I would get this variety, you know, outside as, you know, as an American kid, you know, from burgers and fries to mac and cheese or hot dogs and, uh, you know, chips of all sorts of crazy seasonings and <laughs> pizza Pringles are were yeah. my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a matter of having uh you know two different cultures driving the my palate and I was never really afraid of any sort of um you know gooey things either I mean I would you know I would love to have a whole a whole a whole fish in a soup and then one of the things that I enjoyed doing was always like eating the pieces of the fish head and and enjoying the unctuous pieces and kind of gooey and sticky and like all these different textures that people don't normally associate with uh, enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and then having on the other side, you know, the crispy, crunchy, and I think that's uh, a lot of the um, what a lot of American people like. Uh, are associated with in terms of what they desire uh, you know in terms of the texture that's driven by something you always want something crunchy and wonderful and delicious so I mean fried chicken is a perfect example or french fries uh, if you take any of those elements on their own with that, without the crispy crunchy uh, dimension to it I think people desire it less so Whereas, oh, you know, sorry. something uh, in the order, the mic cut out for a second. Uh, but yeah, just, uh, you know, I've always not been afraid of any sort of food. And I think one of, one of my key approaches to eating is just 
to not try to have as little preconception of something when I'm trying it for the first time, just to understand what it is on its own. I mean, it's a really difficult thing to do and not to be biased towards it, but I think it helps to be able to understand what something is on its own without like having any sort of judgment. Mm-hmm. No, that's totally something that that's really hard. And what's even harder, I think, is teaching that to someone else. Um, how have you tried to share that with someone else, that even approach? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, with my daughter growing up uh, was one of the, you know, things that you can start with a clean slate. So you can just kind of just... We just kept giving her all these different things to try and see what she grew towards. But as she's grown older, it's more like she's being drawn towards things that she really loves to eat, you know, just kind of, you know, carbs and meats and things. She doesn't really love vegetables that much. She'll (laughs) eat, like, vegetables that most normal kids won't, but she's really into, like, savory stuff and, of course, like, ice cream and, you know, and the sugary stuff. But she's a... She's a fairly well-versed um, uh, young lady at this point, um, you know, adventurous and always saying, hey, Dad, like, uh, that was kind of, that's weird stuff you're putting in it, but it tastes really good. Oh. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing is my wife, when we first started dating, she wasn't super adventurous about different flavors and things of that nature. So as I've kind of grown as a cook and understood how to present things it's just more don't ask don't tell (laughs) and then if you kind of and you and then we kind of have this recap after uh she eats something which is helpful in terms of if it's something like you know awful where you know you you don't really want (laughs) some people just don't want to know in certain aspects she understands all the fundamentals of where food comes from and respects that it's just sometimes it's just like she grew up with, you know, meat and potatoes and, like, very straightforward food, mm-hmm. uh, not very flavorful food. And how did you learn about koji? And how did you learn... Um, I remember you telling me about your adventure to make garam, so... Yeah, yeah. so uh, so it starts with garam because I, I had this obsession with fish sauce, and I talked about this yesterday, uh, when... I had, you know, I had food before, prior to that, you know, in, you know, Southeast Asian, um, you know, applications like tha and whatnot, uh, that, you know, I never really investigated how these things were made because I didn't start really, I didn't really start cooking until after college. So some point after college, I discovered fish sauce just by, you know, pr- buying some and trying it. And I thought it was the most amazing thing ever because it had so much umami in it is ridiculous. I mean, it's on, in the terms of umami, it's, you know, obviously better than, than soy sauce, you know, because it just has this really powerful, strong flavor. But what I found is that you can use it to accent just about anything. So I would start just putting it in everything. You know, I would, I would make ranch dressing with it. I would shortcut a bolognese because... I didn't want to wait for it to cook down, so I would just leverage the umami there. I called Dave at one point early on before uh, I was on his show, you know, years before his show, and talked about how to cure bacon with fish sauce. Hmm. So that was pretty a pretty fun experiment, and it worked really well. Aside from when you pan fry it, it just makes your whole house stink. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty delicious. So I got to the point where I felt that I needed to know how to make it because logically if you are procuring something it's not as great quality as if you can find an artisan maker or do it yourself mm-hmm. and I've always been kind of a do-it-yourself person and and learning how the how to figure these things out so I uh so I just started trolling where I normally troll prior to I guess pre-instagram I was on twitter a lot and I just saw this chef named Jeff Lucas, um, a friend of mine, um, and he lived in the Boston area, and he posted that he just started making fish sauce. So I just shot him a quick note, hey, hey man, do you think you could show me how to make fish sauce? And then uh, he invited me to his restaurant to show, show me how to make it, and then I started seeing all these wonderful things he was 
he was working on, you know, fermentations from all over the world. One of the things that I tasted that was pretty amazing was uh, he made this celery kimchi, and it just had this interesting additional, you know, that celery-forward flavor in kimchi, which is kind of a great match, like a great match that I enjoyed. He showed me some meal, mealworm garum that he was working on. So it just it was this whole range of things where he had kind of toured the toured the world and uh, looking at different concepts and just kind of appropriated them based on the ingredients he had. And uh, so then I started working with him, experimenting with him, because he knew that after we got to know each other, we just started kind of bouncing ideas off each other. And then at one point he said, well, I'm doing this dinner. Well, no, it was a brunch of fermentations from across, all over the world. Uh, and I want you to make, I want you to make koji. It's like, okay. And I had no <laughs> idea how to make koji. I didn't know, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't even know it was in soy sauce that I, you know, really enjoy. And, you know, everybody in the world, I would imagine for the most part, um, knows what soy sauce is, you know. So, so I, I learned, I, I started doing research. There's this gentleman named Brandon Byers, um, who, who ran a podcast a while back called Firm Up, and he had a, a bunch of information he had posted on. He wrote a book, a handbook on fermentation, and I just started, you know, pulling information from him in terms of asking him questions. He, he actually sent me you know, recipes, even a presentation on how to teach koji, yeah. which I never really, you know, never really read, but uh, that's besides the point. But so he inspired me to kind of just start doing it at home. And you can do it, you know, as in as simple as, you know, getting some aquarium par parts and putting it into a, a, a cooler to create an incubation chamber. So I did that and I, I made koji and it was amazing. And wonderful because I just started making koji out of all, all sorts of grains because uh, with my engineering brain I just thought well if you have a gelatinized starch and you can and it's not wet and sticky and you can make it fluffy or, or have air in between it anything can be koji uh, so and then at one time I just had this idea that I was just I was kind of looking in my pantry to find something that I wanted to try and I saw popcorn kernels like right at eye level and I thought well if it needs gelatinized starches that are super accessible popcorn is an obvious choice because it's light and fluffy and you, the uh, the aspergillus oryza can get in between the pockets and you don't necessarily have to mix it the only thing I did had to do was add a little bit of moisture, which wasn't a problem. Uh, I just just wetted it with, you know, just dripping some water on it. I have yeah, I have since uh, started just using a like a like a water sprayer, like a hand sprayer. So it was uh, so that's how I learned how to make koji, and then <laughs> and then the interesting story beyond that was um, I had not you know worked in the back of the house very much. And he was interested in helping me learn that side of the, that side of the, uh, of being a chef. Uh, so he brought me into the kitchen uh, the day that they were doing the event because he wanted me to, he wanted to have me help out, learn how to plate and, you know, work with the food and, and understand um, how to assemble and, and, and just know more about, you know, being able to present your, a component that eventually becomes, or a series of components, and how they're composed to become a dish outside of just, you know, cooking and experimenting and figure things out, but just how to do it on that scale. So I, I came with all my kit and all, all the things that I had made. And throughout the, you know, and he's asking me to do some things and I'm just helping prep and figuring it out. And then at one point he just mentions to me, he's like, hey Rich, we're doing this, so this brunch that we're doing is, is for Sandor Katz. And I was just like, oh, okay. So I'm just kind of like, okay, well, I guess we just got to do this and it'll be great because he's, he's running it. But the, it was just an interesting um, 
kind of twist to it because I didn't expect to be presenting, you know, the work that I was doing to kind of, I guess, the forefather of, you know, the, uh, the fermentation revival in the United States. So it was really a, a cool experience. Mm-hmm. And I got to get him to taste the popcorn koji, and he was pretty excited about it. So this makes me think, um, you know how you can pop corn on the cob? Yeah. Do you think that's not as fluffy as the corn kernels? Like, would the koji have a harder time growing on the cob? Or would there even be a point to growing it on the cob versus the, cor- the kernels? Uh, so it would have to... Be, so the, the reason why you pop it is to get the starch to be gelatinized. Yeah. So if it's on the cob, you still have to find a way to get the koji to access the starches. Okay. So it would be harder to, to accomplish that. So I think the I think, you know, I think a couple of things people are doing are one is sprouting corn to to gain access. And um, I think some people are also nixtamalizing it mm-hmm. to, you know, remove the the protective shell. Interesting. So, but the problem with nixtamalized corn is that it can get sticky as well. I haven't really played around with other forms of corn. Uh, just I've just done popcorn because it's, to me, it's the most obvious way to gain access to the gelatinized starches, and it's pretty much an optimal medium for koji. I just find that it it doesn't quite convert over to sugar, but I notice that when I use it, it it has, you know, protease enzymes, so uh, it does a good job, you know, uh, on the, I guess, miso or shoyu or soy sauce, amino sauce type sides. Mm-hmm. So uh, our first episode was with Jeremy Umansky, who is another uh, koji authority, and he has been using koji to speed up the curing of meats, um, which you know, obviously. Yes. And, is that something you work with, or are you? What what attracts you about koji, and what have you been using it for? Because so, Jeremy's like the, the yeah. Jewish deli meat guy. Yeah, he uh, Jeremy is definitely the meat guy, and uh, has done a lot more with charcuterie than I have. Uh, I would say I am the I am more of on the side of understanding how to use koji as a culture in any sort of application. I, I would say that early on I was probably the miso guy just because <laughs> I would take any type of koji and add any protein to it to make a miso. And, I, you know, I, a lot of people already know that, and we've, we've talked about that before on cooking issues. But I think one of the things that I really enjoy about koji now that I'm, I've, I've kind of studied it or, you know, experimented with a fair bit of time is that Koji is a culture for for any any food stuff you want to make with a culture. So if you want to make a culture cream for butter, um, if you want to make vinegar slash kombucha, you can start with koji. Uh, and then it, also if you want to use it as a, a starter for a dough um, for from baking bread or. So I think one thing to understand is that when you make koji, you start what what's really amazing about the koji culture itself is that when you grow koji it creates enzymes so the enzymes will break down the starches and the sugars and those sugars after you've kind of de- after you they've kind of developed they start to attract, attract all sorts of microbes so then once you have the koji you have koji the, the sugar from the koji a bunch of microbes, and you also have, um, and you have uh, protein enzymes as well as uh, uh, sugar enzymes. So you have this whole kind of enzyme-packed culture that you can add to anything to either create sugar from carbohydrates, um, you know, amino acids from proteins, and you have this straight culture. So what's really wonderful about when you add this as a culture to something is that you're also leveraging the fact that you're going to create umami with any sort of residual protein. Uh, so if you think, I mean, if you think about something that has just a remote bit of, uh, if you think about, I guess, wheat that has protein in it, koji by itself that's made with wheat tastes super delicious. 
So if you think about it in that sense, that you can add umami of that base ingredient to anything, your butter becomes a little bit tastier <laughs> with, and it's using the components of that base product. So you're matching exactly, I guess, what you would call some sort of seasoning to, to whatever you start with. So I think that's the beauty of koji is that you, you kind of have a level of being able to amplify sub, like subcomponents of that food stuff that makes it taste that much better. I mean, it does change it in, uh, in different ways that aren't the same as eating it by itself and just adding maybe a little bit of salt to, or you know, a little bit of acid to bring up the volume. But there are things that you can do to bring up the volume that are just ma- using the base component, which is kind of the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's going to be the new scare, like the MSG scare. It's going to be like the Koji scare. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the biggest part of the Koji scare is that it's, it's made with a mold. And right. Isn't it very closely related to black mold? Yeah, so it, it's... It's very, uh, it's, it's, it's aspergillus. So all the other, pretty much all the other strains of aspergillus are really like bad for you. (laughs) Yeah. So they, they can cause aspergilliosis, uh, you know, a a lung condition. That's, that's pretty much fatal. Uh, so for some, I, I don't know how it's necessarily done, but like, there's a lot of, like, like Ken was talking about yesterday, there's a lot of research in terms of the Japanese being able to isolate that very specific strain. And what's really cool about that strain is, is that they've done a lot of studies on it in terms of there's always been fear that would mutate into, you know, a, a dangerous type. And in, in all the studies, it's never done that. But if you think about it in the sense of the way an organism grows, is that if you're constantly feeding it and it has... And, and it has uh, no competitors, it's not going to want to build a, a toxin to, to um, protect itself. Because that's the key to aspergillus, is that it creates these toxins to protect itself. But if you have an organism that's fully fed and, um, and has no competitors, then it has no reason to, to mutate or, or change to protect itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to what you were talking about, how koji can really be applied to any product and just kind of turn up the volume on certain flavors that are already present. Sure. Um, is this what you mean when you say koji dinner or like uh, w- online, right, with your hashtags? <laughs> is that what you're trying to say? Uh, so, I, I, you know, um, I think it was a post, maybe it was probably a post I did around four years ago that was picked up by Lucky Peach and... I, I don't know if anybody used the term uh, Kojify prior, but I just thought it was a neat way of uh, showing, like, saying how it was uh, how it was changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so just you know, I made up a word that seemed kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like there's so many, or now Instagram's telling me to follow the hashtag Koji Builds Community or all these Koji related hashtags. That I feel like you kind of pioneered. And when I went to um, research a project on Reddit. It was like, talk to our cook quest, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, this is the guy. And so how do you feel like these hashtags or even just your projects or your Instagram have kind of pulled this online community together? So, so I think one of the key things to understand about Koji Bill's community or any of the hashtags I use, it's, it's based on, it is based on the community. It's not based on me as a person. I've always wanted to just share ideas and see what other people are doing at no matter what level and be able to help people on any level based on my experience or have somebody tell me that I'm doing something wrong or or have somebody see something that I'm doing and say, oh, I did this slightly differently and if you did this, this is the outcome that you get. So basically just sharing on a global scale and I think you know, social media, media platforms allow for that very readily and, and very easily. So the reason why I do hashtags is just to be able to get um, the information out there, uh, you know, into a community that understands exactly what it is. And I think uh, Koji Bill's community is a very simple concept in terms of 
if you Koji and community, I mean, that's like two different, they're, they're basically two things that I really enjoy studying uh, and helping. And I think it's very easy for people to kind of say, understand exactly what the hashtag is and what we're about. So we as a community are trying to build this base of knowledge that helps um, better anybody who's interested every day until we, I mean, f forever, I guess. Uh, I think Koji's a really powerful product that not many people understand well enough. And, but, but what's interesting enough is that most people who like are familiar with food have a bottle of soy sauce sitting in their pantry and maybe it's sitting there because they decided one day they want to put it in a recipe but there are a lot more things you can do do with it but that that bottle of soy sauce is based on uh, a a particular branch of a mold that you know was discovered as yeast was discovered you know i imagine the way that it's discovered is that you know that you have so much product after after harvest, you don't want you don't know what to do with it. So some of it had to sit out and be in a certain state that would allow for these growths. And I imagine somebody just discovered, hey, this this rice is a little sour, but it's a little sweet too. Maybe we just try to do something with it because, and then if we. And if we add some salt to it, we can protect ourselves because we understand that salt protects us. Mm -hmm. And then we'll just add some beans to it because we know that we can salt some beans. I mean, I imagine that's how it all started, as if, as you know, how beer and wine started, just from pretty much spoilage. But you had to use what you, what you have, ex at, you know, access to, or, or you would just die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like. Um, there are many pictures of food or people posting pictures of food that don't build community in the same way. Like, I feel like people might post pictures of their acai bowls or their green juice, and it's not necessarily building a community. It's more kind of like, this is my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, you're part of it or you're kind of not, you know? And I feel like that doesn't quite happen with what you're doing. I feel like it's very accessible, and I think that's what people are attracted to. And do you... Do you get that sense too? Do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I think one of the key things that I want people to understand is that as a community, uh, we're here to help people. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of growing tired of people not uh, taking the opportunity just to help people. And if it means that, you know, we're here, you know, it's it doesn't have to do with Koji. It, it doesn't have to do with food. It just happened. It just it's about being human, right? And we all are here with all these tools and technology and advances and things that better our lives every day that we just take for granted. And people like worked, worked their asses off to get to a certain point so we could have all the luxuries that we have or have things like, you know, to have a phone that I can get all this information where, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have computers. I mean, I'm of that era where there weren't computers. And to have a, a phone that is the power, like, higher power than a computer, like, when they first started building them, that would, that would be, like, rooms of, um, you know, of a, of a, you know, of a mainframe. And I feel like it's, it's nice when you are able to help someone and then they see that they've benefited from it and see that, you know, they just, they can do more by helping someone else because once you help someone else, they're willing to help you and help others. And then it just kind of has this cascading effect of uh, a, like a spiral upwards instead of, okay, well, you know, I, I've, I'm at the top of the mountain. I was, I was, I was mo more money than I could ever want. I have all this power. Then what? You know, I always ask people. Uh, I I always ask people. Then what? Like when you think about what you're doing, or when you're thinking about what you achieved, then what? And I think the answer that I always think about then what is that 
I want for the next generation to be much better off than we are. And with the way that things are going today, I don't feel like that's happening. And I feel like we have the power as individuals to change that. And it's as little as, hey, um, you want to, hey, I'll, I'll buy you lunch today. Or, hey, I made this meal for you. Or, I have some bread and I can't eat it all. Like, simple things like that, that you can just do very simply. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture of, hey, I'm going to give you $1,000 so you can have something that you've wanted because it's cool to have. It's about the essence of being and improving and gaining knowledge such that we as humans or as humanity can be better in the future and continue to improve and, I don't know, eventually, <laughs> like, I don't know what the eventuality of it is, but just to feel good about improving and that it's, it's not just about you or me. It's about all of us. I'm speaking with Rich of our cook quest on meant to be eaten um, about how to build community, about how life's not all about us. And we'll be right back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays year-round. On Thursday, August 23rd, Brooklyn Botanic Garden will host the Beer and Bocce Benefit, a one-of-a-kind garden party featuring lawn games, live music, and unlimited beer tastings by some of Brooklyn's top beer makers. Proceeds from the Beer and Bocce Benefit provide essential support for the garden's educational and community programs. And mark your calendars for the annual Chili Pepper Festival on Saturday, September 29th. New York's hottest fall tradition will set the garden ablaze with scorching bands from around the world, dozens of fiery food artisans, and hours of chili chocolate debauchery. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. back. Uh, this is Meant to be Eaten, and uh, Rich, you're here for an event this weekend. What was it? Can you tell us about, um, yeah, what you were here for? Uh, so I was here for Happy Family uh, Market, uh, Night Market, and it was, it's basically um, a night market inspired event with vendor, vendors and uh, artists and, um, and, and food makers, and then they also had panels uh, of folks and I was invited to speak as one of the panelists on Asian-American fermentation. Oh, wait. I didn't realize it was Asian-American fermentation. So how does Asian-American fermentation differ from Asian fermentation? Uh, I guess Asian-American fermentation would have to be about Asian-Americans making fermentation. Okay, it's or, not like the products are any different. Or I would imagine maybe Asian-American would be Asian-inspired ferments. Hmm. So I, I don't know. That's that's an interesting question. Yeah, I'll ask Phoebe. What's up with that? <laughs> um, anyway, if you could hear me crunching, uh, Rich has brought in a variety of ferments he's been working on. So what is this one I'm eating right now? Uh, so that's actually a spice bush berry, uh, spice bush berry, uh, green plum umeboshi. So I've I've just been making using the method of ume, uh, Japanese style umeboshi. Can you talk about? what that method is so basically umeboshi is a uh a specific salted uh i believe it's a type of apricot that's very specific to japan for making uh, a salted preserved uh product so the basic process uh as i recall it um i read about it a long time ago so i kind of played around with it a lot but basically, you take you take a a green uh, apricot, and you salt it. Is that it. like an unripe apricot, or just yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. it's, it's unripe. 
so it's it's fairly it's fairly hard mm -hmm. so basically you you take that product you salt it and then you you layer it and then you press it so you allow this uh, heavy weight to press it to so the salt basically draws out the liquids and then you take the uh, the the pressed product out and then traditionally you sun dry it and then once it's completed sun drying you put it back in the brine uh, so it becomes kind of this uh, salty very savory um, uh, fruit so I, I mean I think the thing that's analogous to what a lot of people are familiar with is olives so if you can think of olives with a bit of a complex uh, stone fruit note, you kind of sort of get there. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've, been, that I've been playing with is just being able to do this process on just about anything that makes sense in terms of hard fruits that are sour. So one of the first things that I, I tried was um, at last year was when I was playing around uh, was uh, crab apples because they were sour and very concentrated. And I had actually been collecting them because I was at an apple orchard and I wasn't very uh, impressed with the fruit that was there. It was just kind of typical and not very exciting, but I happened to see this crab apple tree on the side of the graveyard, which is right on the border of the orchard. And typically they have crab, crab apples there to help with pollination. So, so I just went over and tasted one, and it tasted phenomenal. It was tart, but it was surprisingly sweet, uh, sweeter than any crab apple that I've had. And it didn't quite as, have as much astringency. Uh, so I collected a bunch of them, and I, I went to the stand and asked the lady how I would pay for them, and she just didn't really understand. And so then I just kind of just put it on top of all my other apples because <laughs> they kind of fit in between all the spaces. So I got a fair number. And then I was, I was posting about it, and my friend Sean Doherty, who's a, a chef up, up in uh, Portland, Portland, Maine, uh, mentioned that like maybe I should try umeboshi. So when he mentioned that, I just went home and started playing around. And uh, one of the things that I did was, because typically uh, when... Uh, ja for Japanese style umeboshi, they add um, shiso to it. So I was trying to think of something complex that I could add to it, and then I decided because I had some jasmine tea hanging around that I could put that in with the crab apples. And it, so then I followed the whole process. I kind of did some. I did a shortcut in terms of the pressing to allow for. Uh, even distribution of the press without having a lot of apples and uh, a slightly smaller surface area of pressing uh, th for all the apples to be at. So basically I, I used a food saver to vacuum pack the apples with the salt such that I could make one layer that you could easily press um, with, other, with whatever surface area you have. Because if you think of you know, putting it in a vessel or a pan if you don't have enough to fill the pan, then you can't really get the an even distribution of the brine once it gets pressed. So that's one of the things that I did was just I was able to consolidate an area so so that you can press it and get the appropriate amount of brine back into the like out of the fruit. So that was helpful. And then I had since learned if if you have some fruit that's really hard. You can, you can do this backpacking with the salt and you can actually, and then if you actually put it in the freezer, you can use the ice crystals to break up the, uh, the cell structure. So similar to when people freeze um, bananas when they're really ripe, it helps to basically make them go to paste or any sort of fruit. You notice that when you freeze it, it has this effect of like, it totally going to mush when you take it out. So. I've been leveraging that idea in terms of sort of accelerating the the pressing process and the and the fusion into the of the, the brine into the salts. So would you use the freezing for any umeboshi, or is it only if it's super hard? So I I think it's a matter of preference and time. Okay. Uh, so I you would can say make, like 
really fast umeboshi if you yeah. just froze it. Yeah, so it's worked well with the green apricots and green plums. I haven't do it, done a side-by-side, side, but one thing I did notice was when I was doing the green plums, it, it didn't quite press as, as quickly as I wanted to. So then after, like at, at some point, I was waiting a couple of days and it wasn't really doing much. So that's when I actually was like, hey, I'm going to do the freezing process. Because I had done this freezing process for the Hoshi, Hoshigaki experiments that I did, was, which is basically the flip side of the coin of preser- preserving dried fruits is um, leveraging the sugar uh, when you dry it to, to keep it preserved versus leveraging salt. So, so with, with that in mind, um, I would say that, you know, obviously it's not really going to work for crab apples because the cell structure isn't quite, um, an issue for that, but anything that's kind of hard, you can just try it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So have you tried to umeboshi and hoshigaki the same fruit and then done like (laughs) a side by side? I feel like that's super cool. Uh, no, I haven't done that. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting. Yeah, just to try them, like, it, on on both sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But just the salt or just the sugar? Yeah. Or the fruit's natural sugar? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I did was wait last year when I was playing with hoshigaki, the hoshigaki of the small squash that I did. Uh, one of the things that I um, looked at was the concentration of sugar in squash. So it felt like it. I tried to match, basically match what persimmons were in sugar concentration, so I get the appropriate sugar and end product sugar concentration for preservation. So I infused uh, brown sugar into the squash, mm-hmm. or I think at some point I did molasses and maple, or I don't remember. It was a while ago. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, really important to that process is that you massage the skin that's created, right? And so. Why can't you just massage the actual fruit skin? Why do you need... Because I, I, you have to peel it, right? Yeah, so so the reason, the reason why you peel it is, um, is to allow for the... Basically to allow for the slow dehydration uh, of the fruit. Oh, so, so the it, skin protects it too much. Yeah, so okay. if the skin's there, it's not, it's not going to dry in a way that it becomes evenly distributed like leather. So that's one of the things that was interesting about trying other fruit is that with with persimmons, there's a way when you peel them, you they're a little wet, but you can actually massage them and allow them to dry. Whereas when I did the squash, it was just kind of like it was very like especially because I infused the sugar, mm-hmm. it was very sticky and it, and I felt like it would not be easy to work with. So. So what I did was I just power dried it just to dry the skin. <laughs> so I just put in a dehydrator for, you know, overnight such that it created enough of a skin that I could massage it. Were you ever worried that it would rot from the inside out? Because I know that seeds go bad. Yeah, so, so that's, that's a super interesting question. That, that's, um, that, that was one of the things I was worried about for sure is that it would like start to have some sort of issues, but it didn't because if you think about what's inside is that it's, it's, it's microbe free on the end. It's a clean, I guess what you would consider like clean, I guess Hmm. on the inside. So as long as you're creating a barrier and there isn't any sort of, there isn't a way for, um, you know, microbes to get inside, then, then you're okay. So what you do is when you create the skin, you create a protective layer such that, you know, the microbes don't get in. And, and as, as it's dehydrating, you're creating a situation such that the sugar concentration is so high and the water activity is so low that it's not, it's, it's not going to become bad. So that did not happen. Uh, it just smelled very, very, like it smelled like the most concentrated squash when I opened it up. And it was very fibrous. It was crazy. I didn't. I took pictures of it and I posted it a while back. But I think. Oh, I I may have. I did write a blog post on it. So I have to read it. Yeah. Uh, so you dropped this in before we started. It's Coke with what inside? 
so it, it's a cola with um, this a, a spice bush, uh, green plum uh, umeboshi that I made. So uh, Mara did have a drink like this uh, at um, Happy Family Market yesterday. But I, I've been using the brine to put in all sorts of different things in terms of accents. Like if you think of uh, when you have a martini and you have an olive that's dropped in it, or even a dirty martini where you have this level of umami and complexity and salt that really brings up the, the level of the drink on its own. We're not, the drink on its own would not be the same without these savory flavors. I've always been kind of walking the border of savory versus sweet and which one and and which side of the coin you're on and i think people either are people are kind of i feel like people are kind of like uh on one side or the other of the coin and when they're making things i think it's even more drastic uh in terms of sweet versus savory and what what works and i think a lot of chefs are are very innovative in being able to bridge the gap but i never see a line between the two i just kind of see ingredients that you can just hop to either side and, and play around with. So mm-hmm. I've never really thought of one ingredient as solely um, for a like sweet or savory purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have Pocky and uh, sea salt crackers and all these fermented or dried fruits. So it's very... Yeah, so one of the things that I kind of wanted you to try was to take a bite of the uh, spice the the green plum spice bush umeboshi and taste the pocky. Oh, I totally chocolate. ate the whole thing already. <laughs> Get another one. Yeah. Thank you. With the chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's really funny to hear myself chewing. Oh my gosh, that's so good. So. I would rarely eat Pocky now because it's just too, too sweet. Yeah, exactly. But together, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you have... Oh, like, my gosh. Yeah, it's kind of like a du- dueling complexity. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about salted chocolate and how it brings down the level of sweetness. Yeah. Plus, there's like just something about... Also, something about fruit and chocolate or preserved fruits and chocolate that works really well. I was about uh, to say, you can make like a... a very expensive chocolate bar with this. Just like stud it and sell it for ten dollars at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> or you could get it free at Whole Foods. There you go. Yeah. Because they're on strike. <laughs> oh yikes. <laughs> uh, so the so the other thing was I, I brought some goat cheese that I shaved. Uh, well, yeah, I just basically grated some uh, the same green plums, but I did a nubeboshi with lavage, lavage, and I just put it on the. Uh, the goat cheese, so I don't know if you want to try that. But. The lovage was fresh, or how? Yeah, it was fresh. Okay, I got so it was fr- like the shiso replacement. Yeah, basically. Uh, I was looking for something that had a powerful flavor that would push push through uh, the fermentation process and the powerful flavor of, um, you know, basically umeboshi. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so goat cheese and what? Uh, so that... That's the stuff that's shaved on top. So that's the umeboshi. That uh, so it's it, if you think about when you salt or season a a, a cheese, uh, especially when you're making a say a cheese dip, when people typically use alliums, you know they'll they'll use you know something in the onion family and, and salt and some parsley. Mm-hmm. So, like the rolled goat log in the, yeah, the herbs. You could yeah. totally roll that in the for sure. Grated. Yeah, so it's a matter of so the way that I think about food is just just understand the fundamental um, the fundamental aspect of what something is, and if something tastes has the elements of that but is not the same thing, it probably will work. Mm-hmm. So I, I interchange things without even thinking about them. I have this. I mean, everybody has it. You have this flavor brain, I guess. I think that's what some people call it is like you have this memory of a flavor and then as as chefs and cooks it they associate them with combinations of things to use them with and then if you can just continue to taste things and understand the elements you can just create infinite combinations based on that catalog of things that you've tried and I tried not to, to not to limit to anything I mean there are certain things that uh, 
that don't necessarily make sense in your brain that ultimately work because you just decide to try it because that's what you have and it's like why not you know nobody else has done it so why What's not it's been the most surprising combo for you i don't know like that's a really tough question <laughs> to answer so one of the things that i'm really excited about that i think will work really well uh is that a friend of mine um a friend of mine eric who's an amazing forager uh he has been making this cuff stuff that he calls funk dust and it's basically the um, dehydrated brine and leftovers of lactoferments to make a salt. So it's a super like savory salt. So uh, recently I was like, hey, man, can you send me a bunch of that? So he had made a lacto-fermented sofrito and he gave me the dehydrated salt from that. And uh, I, I cured some pork belly to make bacon with it. So I'm super excited about that. So will the salts have that same kind of bacterial activity or is it just the flavor? No, it's just going to be the flavors at okay. this point. Basically, you've sacrificed the, the microbial activity for that flavor. Yeah. So this is one thing that I can't do, but you have to do is um, I started a Nuka pot. Yeah. And um, I can't. I haven't taken care of it, but if you, <laughs> if you make nuka pickles and then dehydrate those and make yeah. a funk dust from those, oh. I feel like that could be really cool. Yeah. yeah. Or even, even maybe dehydrate the bed or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's cooler actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could do all sorts of things, but yeah, I mean, I guess nuka zuke is one of those things that you have to be a diehard yeah. because I feel like it takes a lot of maintenance and like care. It's, it's even harder than maintaining a sourdough mother. Okay, I have both a sourdough and a nuka pot. <laughs> and today, because it's so hot out, I came home and there are fruit flies like all over my starter, my poor starter. And so yeah. now I have to like fix it. It's really sad. <laughs> it's like the worst pet ever. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I, I guess you give a cheesecloth over it to try to yeah, avoid it. I just, so I was worried that it would... Um, rise too much because I put oh, it in like a very small mason jar so I kind of opened the lid a little bit uh, but then the fly stuck in yeah it's okay it's just protein yeah <laughs> oh I'll make a koji <laughs> starter I just got spores oh sweet yeah yeah so totally um yeah I'll, I'll, I can help you get there cool so because that, that's what we do mm-hmm. <laughs> yay okay so what's the you said it's an apple yeah so uh I just pretty much and so there, there's one point there, every season, I always see uh, people making hoshigaki from persimmons. And it was just last year that I was like, well, you can do this process with anything. So that's when I found the this, this squash in my CSA. That was this tiny baby squash, and it was super cute. I was like, what am I going to do with this? And I was <laughs> like, I'm going to hoshigaki it. Mm. So then I did the peeling, and I, you know, and then I... Um, then I put brown sugar on it and I, you know, vacuum pressed it and then I put it in the freezer so it would break down the cell stuff. And then I did the whole dehydrator thing and I just started massaging it. So at that point, I like posted it on Instagram and a bunch of, you know, chefs and cooks got super excited about it. And then all these people started making, you know, all these different hoshigaki. So I was super excited that people got inspired, were inspired by this one thing that I did and it just, grew like wildfire and I kept on getting these messages like hey I tried this or how did you do that like asking me questions about it and I did a blog post so people would be you know be be able to read how I did it and it was just I thought it was really cool that I did something silly that ended up working really well Mm -hmm. and then people just started doing hoshigaki of anything Mm -hmm. so you said you did this with an apple and yeah um, I feel like apples and persimmons have very different texture and water content. What's the limit? Like, you can't hoshigaki a watermelon. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think if you dehydrate it enough, you probably Ooh, could. Okay. You'd have to, yeah, you'd have to dehydrate it, like, a lot. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if that would be worth it. I mean, maybe if you... <laughs> It'll get super small. Yeah, maybe if you pressed it first, but I don't know. It might just, like, fall apart. Mm. Yeah, so we're running out of time. 
But uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We're still going to keep tasting. Sorry, listeners, you can't be here. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, we'll be back at the same time next week. Yeah, it was amazing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.